from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8, so we can know what this serious issue is I'm referring to. Beginning of verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Sexual sin in all its forms is one of, if not the most serious sin to God. But why? Why is this particular issue this serious to God? We're going to answer two questions today. Why is sexual sin so serious to God? And what is the scheme of the devil, the greatest scheme of the devil, to tempt us to give in to it? Amen? Well, let's start with what is sexual immorality? Well, the Greek word for it is porneia. It's where we get porn from. The Greek word porneia, pornography. And it means fornication, prostitution, to engage in illicit sex, whoredom, sexual urges, unfaithfulness, and apostasy. It's a wide range. It's, it's a term that essentially covers everything from crushes that could be lustful in the heart to pornography to sexual intercourse. It's a broad term. Often sexual immorality is seen as something outside the marriage, usually for singles who sin before marriage. But sexual immorality is, is more serious than that. It affects married couples as well. In fact, God has strong language for marriages. He says this in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Listen to the strong language that mirrors the strong language of 1 Thessalonians 4. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let the marriage be held in high honor among all. Let marriage be held in high honor. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You notice that he separates sexually immoral and adulterous because those are two different things. Because you cannot have ever committed adultery but be sexually immoral in your marriage. You can give in to pornography. You can lust after someone else. You can imagine someone else while you're intimate with your spouse. There's a range of things that can happen in the course of marriage. And God has strong language. He says, I will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep in mind the Bible is 99.99% written to believers. So he's not talking about he'll judge unbelievers. That's a given. 
He's saying, I'm going to judge those who profess to believe in me that do these things. He takes it very seriously. But why? Why does he hate this sin so much? There are four reasons the Bible lists. Could be more, but there are four. We're going to just quickly examine. One, we're going to zoom into. And it may shock you. Why does God hate sexual sin so much? First reason. He says it in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. There's three reasons in that. The first reason, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So here's the first reason God hates it, because you sin against your own body. Now think about that claim for a second. We're, when this was written, they weren't doing the things that we do now. There's a lot of modern technology. People, you know, when I was in the streets, I sold crack to people and would watch people either take a glass pipe or take a soda can, dent it in the middle, put a hole in it, put ashes around it, and put the crack rock there and smoke it and have it come out through, and it was affecting their bodies. Drugs damage your body. People shoot needles. I watch people shoot heroin in their bodies, and their bodies deteriorate. Now, God being sovereign, knowing that all of that would happen, still said sex, sexual immorality, is the only sin from his perspective where you sin against your own body. That's the first reason why God hates it. The second reason, in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Again, he's talking to believers. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Second reason why God hates it because it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look, I put my spirit in you. You're not just operating, even though we don't walk around feeling like, you know, for us, the spirit is like, some of y'all don't know about this movie, The Last Dragon. Y'all not grown enough to know about The Last Dragon. But if you know about The Last Dragon, it was a karate movie, right? It was a, a black dude that did kung fu, and he was fighting this dude named Shonuf. And at the end of the movie, when he knew that he had the power, he was getting beat up and picked on the whole movie by Shonuf, and at the end... He was like Neo in the Matrix. He just believed. And all of a sudden, this orange glow came over his body. And he punished Shonuf. Punished that man. We want the Holy Spirit to be this orange glow to say, hey. And we think because we don't have the orange glow, we don't have him. No, if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, he is in you. So when you sin sexually, you sin against the Holy Spirit. Go back a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. He says this. He proves the point even further. He says, in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So if you believe in the Lord to God, you're one spirit with him. But if you have sex with a prostitute, you take the Holy Spirit and say, Here you go to this prostitute. So God hates this sin. Third reason, 
It is the sin that the enemy, Satan, uses the most. He uses this sin the most. Assuming that Christianity is the only true faith, spoiler alert, and the Trinity is the one true God, it is fascinating that apart from Buddhism, which teaches that sexual desire is a hindrance to enlightenment, apart from Buddhism, every other religion, I looked at a ton of them, there's probably some, I mean, you can't look at all of them, right? I looked at plenty of them. They all have gods that engage in sex with each other, with human, and they have and they have gods for sex. Like people pray to gods, the god of fertility, the god of romance, the god of it's incredible. In the days of the Old Testament in the Israelites, that area was called Mesopotamia. There were a lot of cultures with religions, and all of their religions have gods who have sex with each other. And part of their sex created the earth according to their mythology. Listen to this. This is a quote from this article I read. It says, sexuality was central to the life of ancient Mesopotamia. In an area of the ancient Near East, often described as the cradle of Western civilization, roughly corresponding to modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, parts of Syria, Iran, and Turkey, it was not only... So for everyday human beings, but for kings and even deities, speaking of sex. Mesopotamian deities shared many human experiences with gods marrying, procreating, sharing households, and familial duties. However, when love went wrong, the consequences can be dire in both heaven and on earth. Scholars have observed the similarities between the divine marriage machine found in ancient literary works and the historical courtship of mortals, although it is difficult to disentangle the two, most famously so-called sacred marriages, which saw Mesopotamian kings marrying deities. Embedded in plenty of religions is this idea that gods have sex. The enemy, assuming Christianity is the only true religion, then all of these are false religions and they teach people that the gods that you worship are sexual beings. In Greek mythology, there are 18 gods and goddesses that are connected to sexual activity in some form. In the Roman pantheon, there were six gods and goddesses with sexuality as their sphere of influence. Keep in mind, these were real religions that people believed, so they influenced humanity. Humanity resembles, you always resemble who you worship. Scripture tells us you become what you worship. So the influence from these gods will lend to sexuality because the gods themselves are sexually active, at least in their mythological religious doctrines. We know this to be true even from the word. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, chapter 20, God warns the Israelites not to commit the sexual sins of Egypt and the surrounding nations as it is in conjunction with the worship of their gods. He summarizes this in Luke and Leviticus 18.24, where he just says this. That whole chapter is warning against all these sexual activities that the surrounding nations do and that Egypt, who they left, do. And he says this, do not make for yourselves, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. 
So why does God hate sexual sin so much? One, because you sin against your own body. Two, you sin against the Holy Spirit. Three, it's the sin the enemy uses the most. But the fourth reason is the one we're going to focus on today. The fourth reason. This is the main reason why I believe God hates sexual immorality so much. And here's why. It's the original sin of the fallen angels. It's the original sin of the fallen angels. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any, as they, cho any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the son of, sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the term sons of God are angels, describing angels, angels that left heaven because of a sexual desire for women, something that angels did not have. So it's not coincidental that all these other religions have deities engaging in sexual activity, but our God does not. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, but not through intercourse. Jesus had no wife. His offspring were by faith, not sex. Think about this. Angels who are in the place that we hope to be in, in the presence of God in heaven, because they are lusting after human women, leave the presence of God and glory with him to be sexually immoral. This is the sin of the original sin of the fallen angels. A direct disobedience to God. If you're a parent or someone in authority over someone like a child or someone like a teacher or whatever you are, and say something is really serious and the person lies to you when they tell you, hey, I, I don't know what happened, I didn't do it. And you believe them, all right? And then you find out they were lying. You're always more offended than what they actually did, right? Why? Because you lied. You looked me dead in my face and lied to me. People don't understand that when they do that, they don't understand how much it bothers the person because you looked me dead in my face and you lied to me. These angels looked God dead in his face and said, we want to have sex. And so they leave heaven and they create chaos on the earth. Sexual immorality is the original sin of the fallen angels. Jude reflects on Genesis 6 and highlights that sexual immorality is the issue of angelic rebellion. Jude covers this well. It says in verse 6, and the angels did not stay within their proper, listen to this, their, prop, their position of authority, right? 
The angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They didn't stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Look what it says. So he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness till the judgment of the great day. They're in eternal chains because of sexual immorality. They're under gloomy darkness because of sexual immorality, waiting. So for thousands of years, they weren't even allowed to do evil in the earth. Some angels are. So he goes from the angelic side, but then he goes to the human side, and he makes a connection that I think most people misunderstand. In verse 7, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So he goes from Genesis 6 to, ver in verse, six, to, to, to verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, just like them, they pursue sexual immorality an unnatural desire. He said they serve as an example, as an example of those who will be punished by eternal fire. Specifically by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So you got angels chained up, and then you got people in Sodom and Gomorrah will be punished as well. And in this passage, God is also showing why he hates sexual sin so much and the deeper reason of why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a connection here between the angels in Genesis 6 and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's both textual and circumstantial. So here's the textual connection. Verse 7, he says, which likewise? So the angels in Genesis 6 who did not stay within their own position of authority, left their proper dwelling. And then there's people in Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise, which means they did the same thing. So Sodom and Gomorrah and the fallen angels of Genesis 6, the people, did the same thing. Textual connection. It's connecting different events, same activity. Here's the circumstantial connection. Likewise indulged in verse 7. It says they likewise indulge in both sexual immorality and unnatural desire. So the angels of Genesis 6 and the city of Sodom and Gomorrah both indulged in sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Here's where I think a lot of people, including myself historically, get what God is saying wrong about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Sodom and Gomorrah is so infamously known as the homosexual city, most people assume the language, the two words, unnatural desire, is referring exclusively to men having sex with men. But there's a huge problem with this perspective, a huge problem. Unnatural desire is saying something different. 
unnatural desire is connected to the sin of the angels and sexual immorality. For the angels, unnatural desire would have been to be intimate with women. Unnatural desire for men is seen as being intimate with other men. But that's what sexual immorality covers. Sexual immorality is men being intimate with other men. It covers that range. Unnatural desire is saying something different. Again, most people think this is about men with men. But here's a couple of problems. Three problems with that. One, Sodom and Gomorrah was not a gay town. It's not a gay town. Listen to Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5. It says, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called Lot, called to Lot, where are the men whom you came tonight, who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. So it highlights the men, young and old, came. You think like, wow, this was crazy. But listen to what Lot says in verse 7. And I said, and, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Why would Lot offer his virgin daughters to men who are exclusively desiring of only other men? Keep in mind, Lot lives in this city. He knows what's up, right? He knows the drill. Why would he offer his virgin daughters? First of all, why would he offer his children anyway for just a couple of dudes? I mean, let's, let's <laughs> I, we all love the Lord, and you know, you surround my house and be like, hey, who, let them dudes come in and your kids. Hey, fellas, my bad, bro, but uh, my children, we have a, he offers his virgin daughters to men who only want men? Mm. Here's another problem. We know that there were men who were not sexually immoral in Sodom and Gomorrah. Second Peter 2, 7 and 8 tells us this. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So we know at least Lot wasn't that way. But he stayed in the city, said tormenting himself, choosing to be there. But then listen to what happens when the angels say, Lot, you and your family go. We get ready to light this city up. Listen to what they say in Genesis 19, 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They thought he was playing. Straight Friday, that's your problem, Smokey. You always playing. 
these dudes were smoking and the city was going to burn up. So the, so the joke is prophetic. You're always playing. Now, Lot said, we just read that Lot was a righteous man, right? So Lot, a righteous man who was tormented by the unrighteous deeds of the city, would he allow his daughters to marry men who were doing those things? How are you righteous if you'll give sons-in-laws to your daughter who are committing the acts that are tormenting your soul? These men were presumably like Lot, not given into sexual violations. So this was not a gay town. There were men in this town that didn't do that. The unnatural desire is not talking about men wanting other men. That's sexual immorality. So why does it say sexual morality and undesire and connect it to what the angels did in Genesis 6? Because unnatural desire is about men wanting to have sex with divine beings, with angels. These men with Lot were angels, and these men knew it. It wasn't just, oh, we want to be with other men. It was, we want to be with those men. They're divine beings. In the Greek, the term unnatural desire means different flesh. Different flesh. This is the only time in the Bible where this word is used in connection with sexual morality. The only time in the Bible where unnatural desire is used with sexual, meaning different flesh. So it says sexual immorality, they, they pursued sexual immorality and different flesh would be the literal translation. The Bible does not describe differences of human flesh as different flesh. It distinguishes between different fleshes. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 39 and 40. Here's what he says. For not all flesh is the same, but there was one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. You see the distinction? Mm -hmm. The heavenly body is one kind of flesh. The earthly body is another kind of flesh. And in this scene, there were heavenly bodies and earthly bodies with different flesh. So when it says that they were pursuing unnatural desire, they were like the people in Noah's day, having sex with divine beings. In Genesis 19.1, we read this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the earth. Now, I could be wrong. I've studied a lot of old ancient Near Eastern cultures and customs. I don't know any where you just bow down to any old dude. Lot knew who these men were angels. In fact, the Old Testament is littered with people who have seen Jacob wrestle with God. Like, oh, no, I've seen God face to face. But he knew it was a man. When Samson was born, his wife and, 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 and Samson's mom and dad were like, oh, we've seen the Lord face to face. We're doomed. That's what she thought. And, and the husband was like, oh, 
that we would have been killed if that was the case, right? We're not killed, so. It was normal. The culture of the day and the way people worship God included an expectation that gods would appear in human form. That's why Lot was so distraught because he knew, man, I didn't know what the angels would do, but he knew you're trying to be intimate with angels. Please don't do this. Take my daughters instead. The unnatural desire described in Jude is connected to sex with divine beings. That's why it connects Genesis 6 and Sodom and Gomorrah as pursuing, likewise, indulged in the same things. This is mainly why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They were trying to imitate the main sin of the days of Noah. dangerous. God hates sexual immorality because it's the original sin of the angels. So when humans engage in sexual immorality, we sin in the same divine rebellion as the fallen angels. And when we know God and have the spirit in us, we might as well have been doing it right in his face. So he has strong language against it. God hates this sin so much that the consequences of sexual immorality were to destroy the children that came from angels and humans, but not destroy them as we know it, but their disembodied spirits become what we now call demons. So the consequences of angelic sexual immorality was the, the birth of demons and evil spirits who torment us. We've read this before in the book of Enoch. This was the book that the, that the Israelites believed in many cases to have truths about God's word. In fact, in Jude 1, 14 and 15, listen to what this says in Jude 1. This is for anyone wondering why I'm about to quote from a book like the book of Enoch and not the Bible. Listen to what it says in Jude 1, 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. A lot of ungodly in that joint. The Lord wants to make sure you know what he's talking about. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's in quotation. I will give anyone $1,000 if you can find this quotation in your Bible. Any translation of the 66 books, I'll give you $1,000 if you can find it in your Bible. And yes, I do have it. You will not find it because it's nowhere in your Bible. I looked. You know where this comes from? A direct quotation in our Bible. It comes from Enoch, the book of Enoch, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9. Look at this. And behold, he cometh. It's that old James language. It ain't had an old James. 
He cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and all of the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Go back to Jude 1, 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seven from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Bible, the inspired word of God, quotes from the book of Enoch. So I'm comfortable reading what I'm about to read now to help us understand the consequences of angelic sexual immorality produced demons. Enoch chapter 15 verses 8 through 12. But now the giants, that's what the Nephilim were called, who are born from the union of the spirits and the flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies because from that day they were created from the holy ones. They became the watchers. Their first origin is the spiritual foundation. They will become evil upon the earth and shall be called evil spirits. The dwelling of the spiritual beings of heaven is heaven, but the dwelling of the spirits of the earth, which are born upon the earth, is the earth. The spirits of the giants oppress each other. They will corrupt, fall, be excited, and fall upon the earth and cause sorrow. They eat no food, nor become thirsty, nor find obstacles. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of the people and against the women because they have proceeded forth from them. This is what ancient Near Eastern Jews thought demons were. They didn't think demons were fallen angels because they're not. And I've already went over that, so I'm not going to go through that again. The consequences of sexual sin by angels created demons. Stuff that we really deal with. God takes sexual sin seriously because it's the origin, it's the original sin of the angels. And this is why so many of these false religions emphasize gods of sex and sexuality. They are cosmic powers of darkness distorting sexuality to the degree that today, today, witches in the occult will talk of having sex with demons. I Googled this and I saw a link that said how to have sex with demons responsibly. I wanted to click so bad, but I thought, I don't even want this evil on my screen. This is a serious issue to God. It's a serious issue. But it's also a serious issue to Satan. And he schemes us in three ways, but one we're going to zoom in on. There are three schemes of the devil as it relates to sexual immorality. The first is pleasure. It just feels good. Feels good. We're drawn to it from a pleasure perspective. The second is love. The distorted view of love to do it outside of the way God commanded it. But love. We will be intimate with people because we care about them. We love them. Even though if you're a believer and the other person says they're a believer, then you engage in sex 
How loving is it to do that when you are damaging your, your relationship with the Lord? If someone tells you they love you, but they're willing to compromise God's word with you, that's not love. Or they may love the way you feel, but they don't love you. That's lust. That's sin. No matter how you slice it, love is not love. But here's the third one, and I think this is the greatest scheme that the devil uses to tempt us to give in the sexual sin. Loneliness. Loneliness. Man, does he grip us with loneliness. It's subtle, but it's deep. It's deep. Loneliness. It gets us, even for just a second. Thursday night, just to be transparent, Thursday night, I went out to, a buddy of mine was in town, so three of us got together. We went out to this really like well-known, like rich restaurant. My buddy was paying. <laughs> so we go out to this expensive restaurant in D.C. So we were all fresh. Everybody was fresh. It's one of them restaurants where you walk in and you might see somebody that's on TV or something. So every time I walk in, people look at me like, does he play for the Redskins? Is he? Do I? <laughs> people will stare at me trying to figure out, like, who is this big dude? You know, and I'm in there smooth. You know, I'm off to I love it when you call me big pop. I'm in there smooth. Right? I walk in, sit down with my buddies. I'm sitting here, my man's sitting here, my other buddy's sitting here. There's a woman right here, beautiful woman. I can't help but notice her. So we're just talking. I glance over. Oh, okay. You know, I'm people watching. Glanced over again. She glanced over. We caught eyes, and I looked away quick. And I was eating talking to my friends, then I saw her keep looking, and I was like, don't look. Do not look. So I pretended like I was really interested in what my friend was saying, but I was really thinking, <laughs> do not look. Do not look, because she was attractive. She was talking, she was hanging out with a dude, Not my, my perspective was, that's not his girl. I was like, that, he ain't got that type of game, I could tell, you could just tell. That's not his girl. They work together. So I was talking to my buddy, and then they got up to leave. And then I, just a second, I peeked. Just a second. As soon as I did it, I said, man, Lord, please forgive me. And here's the reality. I wanted to see if her shape was as pretty as her face was. And you know why? Because I'm lonely. Lonely. All I saw was her ankles, by the grace of God. <laughs> They looked ashy, too, so that was also. So I was like, nope. I said, I was, I was, it was literally, I was like, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm pleased with you, Lord. I said it to myself because my friends, they didn't catch it. Loneliness is a good scheme of the devil. And there are people in this room who have fallen victim to it. I'm not the only one. Loneliness. Let me tell you why it's one of the greatest schemes of the devil. Let me tell you why. It gets us because he remembers something we often forget. Let me tell you why loneliness is a good scheme. Of the, I think it's the best scheme of the devil. Here's why. Genesis 2, verse 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. Somebody's with me. If that's Banjo, that's your next new pastor, so y'all better be glad for that. He's focused. 
Listen to what it says. And the Lord commanded, this is in the garden, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, retrieve the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Sexual immorality between a man and a woman began with God's concern for Adam that he would be lonely, that he would be alone. It began, and Satan knows this. He knows this is why God created Eve. He was there in the beginning. Remember in the book of Job, verse 38, book, chapter 38, verse 4 through 7, listen to what God is saying to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Morning stars, sons of God are pseudonyms for angels. God is saying, where were you when I created the foundation of the world and the angels were singing for joy? Satan was there watching God create all of it, singing for joy. In fact, he probably led them in song if he was the worship leader. The worship leader is the devil. JP, you are no longer going to sing with him. He's definitely not. He knew that Eve was created so that Adam wouldn't be lonely. He knew that God didn't want him to be alone. You know what loneliness is? Loneliness craves connection. When you're lonely, you want to connect with someone. You just want to connect. You just want to connect. Loneliness is a problem for many of us, and Satan knows the power of it. Because when you're lonely, you want to connect. You can be lonely in your marriage. You can be lonely in a crowded room of people. You can be lonely in a house full of people. When you're lonely, you will do crazy things. But when you're lonely, you want to connect. You will make a decision that you never thought you would make because you're lonely. The enemy uses it. You shouldn't be alone. Shoot, God told Adam. He took a concern that God had for Adam and turned it in a scheme to convince us that loneliness is worth sinning against the Lord. And some of us, some of us have compromised our confidence for companionship. We've done it. It's a good scheme. I give him his credit. He's sharp dude. Don't underestimate him. Don't think because you're a believer that somehow, don't underestimate him. He's a sharp dude. If you've ever heard testimonies of people who lived a, 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 a promiscuous lifestyle to get saved, I've heard tons of them. Do you know the theme in all of them? Almost every one of these testimonies, you know what they all say about that lifestyle? They talk about the emptiness they felt, going from partner to partner and this and that. The emptiness. They felt lonely. It was empty. And then they meet Jesus and feel like, wow, something's different. 
this is one of the reasons why I think Jesus chose loneliness. He chose loneliness. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Listen, as one from whom men hide their faces. You hide your faces, nobody wants to be around you. He said he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus chose loneliness. Jesus said this of himself in Matthew 8, verse 20. And talking to his disciples, he wanted them to know. He said, look, Lord, we'll follow you anyway. This is what he said. In verse 20, he said, look, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you want to follow me, it's a lonely road. It's a lonely road. We see statements like this, like in Matthew 14, verse 23. It says this. This is after Jesus had heard that John the Baptist was killed in prison. He stopped and taught and fed people, and then he went off. This is what it says in verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Jesus was the only one who would be alone. He sent his disciples out in twos. Always in twos. He said, well, two or three of you are gathered. I'll be with you. He didn't mean I'm not with you if you're by yourself. He meant I don't want you to be by yourself. Of course he's with us when he's by yourself. So you mean to tell me when I'm praying, the Lord's like, hey, man, I can't. I ain't listening until you get with somebody from the church. That's not what he meant. He didn't mean if you're by yourself, I'm sorry, I ain't listening, bro. No, nah, he was like, no, when two or three of God, he, this is what I want you to be together. That's why the scriptures use one another like 68 times in the New Testament. Loneliness is such a big deal that Jesus told his disciples, I will be with you until the end of the age. I want you to know you're not alone. That's where Michael Jackson got it from. You are not alone. This is why the New Testament language is focused so much on relationship language. This is why we're in Christ. This is why we're with Christ. This is why God said, draw near to God. This is why the Holy Spirit is in us. It's all you're not alone language. You know why? Because loneliness is the chief reason for sexual immorality. On one level, the angels were like, man, we want that. They were lonely. They were lonely, the angels. God didn't create female angels for them. They're looking down like, dad, these people, like, they're like having a great time. These creatures look all right, too. They were lonely. So they leave and commit the original sin. Cosmic beings whom God created sinned in his presence. And those cosmic beings created religions that convinced much of humanity that all sexual expression is both an imitation of their gods and acceptable to man. You know the pressure on you, if, you're, if you have a sexual, a biblical sexual ethic, you know why people would get offended at you? Like on one level, I don't, I don't get offended if you, what you think about my sex. I don't care if you think I, you're mad because I like women. I don't care if I'm, that's why I'm, I don't care. But people get offended, you know why? Because they think you're not allowing people to be in love. Love is love. Who can, Jesus is love. No, love is truth. 
Love is truth, too. They're saying love is attraction and emotion. The Bible says love is truth. So I can't change my ethic because of that. God hates sexual morality because it's the original sin of the angels. And when we sin sexually immorally, we are imitating the divine rebellion. And it makes sense. If you listen to a lot of testimonies of people who come out of witchcraft and all of that, they will talk about sexuality as one of the entry points. Why that? With all that being said, Let's go back to the beginning and look at this passage one more time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Let's read this one more time together. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is why I can't be moved by slogans of the culture. Because I'm, I'll disregard man, because if I agree with you, then I disregard God. I, I, I'm sorry. I can't. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Straightforward language. Straightforward language. It says it's the will of God. Your sanctification means consecration, devotion. This is your devotion, to abstain. You know what abstain means in the Greek? To be distant. To be distant. What is biblical maturity? Desire, distance. Abstain means to be different. You can't make this stuff up. Verse 4, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Straightforward language. Got to control our bodies. If we don't, then we are essentially like people who don't know God. This is God's perspective. This isn't just mine. This is literally, I'm just saying what he's saying. We cannot think that God is like, hey, I know you're lonely. I know that's not how he thinks. He's merciful, but he's still holy. That's not how he thinks. He's not like, man, you've had a bad rap. I get it. He's not excited about our fantasies of other people. Our lives are not romantic comedies. When we give in a sexual sin, we're acting like we don't know God from his perspective. When we focus on our, this is what happens. This is how the enemy gets us. We focus on our feelings for the person more than our feelings for God. So it's more about how I feel about you rather than how he feels about me. 
and that gets trumped. And you know why this is hard? Because let's just be honest. Like, we're talking about faith versus sight. Versus sight. It's faith versus sight. I have to have faith that, that this relationship is good and strong. People be talking like they have conversations with the Lord all the time, and he be telling them what to do. I ain't poor, but I ain't buying it. <laughs> I just don't think so. You know why? Because if the Lord is always telling you what to do, then there's no faith. That's sight. So he told Abraham something and waited 10 years to come back, but he's talking to you every day. Good morning, Curtis. Lord, should I do this? Nope, don't do that. I want you. Nope, I got this ready for you. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not buying it. I think he, faith, it takes faith, but sight, that's different. I can see you. I can, I can see Chris. I can talk to Chris. He can come up, dap me, and hug me afterwards. I don't feel hugs from the Lord, but there are times you have this sweet moment, but those aren't like, I can hug Chris, boom, dap. I can go to Roger and be like, give me one of them hugs that you be giving other people. He might be like, well, your back is too big. I don't know if I can. <laughs> hey, go ahead, Roger, man. Go ahead. Bro. You have to understand, we have to learn how to have the intimate relationship by faith. It's not by sight. Now, there are going to be times God answers prayer and shows us stuff, but it's not how it works. It's a sight thing that we're battling. I can see you. I can touch you. I can hear you. When, you, when I say I love you and you say you love me, I can hear that. When I say, Lord, I love you, I don't hear nothing. I have to look at the promises in his word and know, like, yeah, he feels that way. Otherwise, he's lying. Verse 6, he says, look, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. He said, no, you know what transgress means? It means to step over, to mount, and to wrong his brother. That means you push past their conviction for your own. But I love you, though. I love him. I love you. You are stepping over. You are wronging that person. It's interesting that he uses the word mount. No pun intended. The Lord is an avenger. He says, you've been warned. Listen, God is not here to shame anybody. He's here to warn like, hey, hey, don't go like, don't go this way. Because there's judgment waiting for you here if you do this. Don't do this. He's not here to shame you. You don't got to be ashamed. You know why? Because the Lord knew what you were going to do before the foundation of the world began. It's because you're shocked at what you did. I'm shocked at what I did. I was blown. I just peeked back and was like, oh, Lord, I'm tripping. My bad. Lord, please forgive me. You have a thought. like, man, whatever. The Lord is not sitting there like, why are you? But when you step over, now that's not, you're not struggling. Now you're giving in. Straightforward language. The Lord says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know what disregard means? To reject, declare invalid. Says God will not, listen, he doesn't care how old you are, how cute you are, how cool you are, none of it. 
That doesn't matter to the Lord. He, what matters is how focused you are. He has a problem. God doesn't have a problem with people having sex. He created it. He has a problem with people having sex whenever and however they want. And then we always live, well, why does God do why this, why is that? Do you know every one of us have parameters, right? We all have parameters. If you cross certain lines, it changes our relationship. You cross certain lines. It changes our relationship. It changes our relationship. There's certain things that if you say and do to you, you all have them. It changes the way you see that person. You would be like, look, I can forgive you, but as far as hanging out with you and all of that, that's a wrap. Can't trust you. I can forgive you. I'm not going to try to sin back against you, but as far as like, look, bygones is not biblical. Forgiveness is biblical. That's an actual decision. I'm not, nah, it's like we might not talk again because of this. It's possible. We all have standards. Well, so does God. If you break his standards, there are consequences. If you do, someone does something to you, it could change your relationship with them. If we do things to God, it will change our relationship with him. He created us. We're just like him. We're made in his image. Sexual sin is a desire that we must deny ourselves the right to engage in. And we must never think that God's patience with our sin is somehow his understanding and somewhat dismissiveness towards it. It's just not how it works. Many of us are deceived by immediate consequences. Let me explain what I mean. We think that when we do something, say you sin, you give in willfully, you watch pornography for hours, you give in, and you feel bad about it. The next day you come to church, you feel like a hypocrite. You don't want to sing, you don't want to pray, you know, people know there's something wrong. You hope that, that the worship set gets you hyped up. You hope the message is good, and you hope it doesn't talk about what you just did. You feel all these things, right? And then nothing happens apart from that. There's no immediate consequence. And then we think like, oh, okay. There's no immediate consequence. But we forget that God told Adam, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. So you would think, all right, Adam. All right, God, I'm getting ready to bite. What you going to do? <laughs> he didn't drop dead. He lived 930 years or something. No, but what he did was he died spiritually. When we give in to sexual sin, we die spiritually. We lose our confidence. We lose our desire to be with God. We feel more like a hypocrite. Even if no one ever finds out, you know. God knows. For the sake of who God is to you, to us, and for the sake of his glory, and for the sake of your eternal soul, put some distance between this. Put some distance between this. God will give you glory to do so. He called us to holiness, not to helplessness. definitely is. Let's pray.
Father, you hate to sin greatly. And the devil, what a scheme loneliness is. Takes it right from your concern for Adam that he would not be alone. What a scheme. I know I've fallen victim to this plenty, Lord. I am guilty as charged. Even as simple as Thursday night. Many of us have fallen victim to this, Lord. It may be in that place right now. And we can feel helpless. That's what the enemy wants us to feel is helpless. Hopeless. But Lord, your word is helpful, hopeful. You're warning us, just like any good person, friend, would do. But your warnings aren't, aren't angry. They're loving. You're warning us, hey, don't do this. It will wreck our relationship with you. So, Father, I pray for anyone who is battling this, this issue. I pray for people who are battling anger from last week. What a crazy word you gave, Mike. These schemes of the devil are real, and these sin issues are real. And Lord, there's hope. May we be more aware of loneliness in our midst and how it's affecting us. And give us the courage to distance ourselves from this and draw near to you, draw near to the community that you gave. Lord, teach us that we don't make progress by being a Lone Ranger Christian. You were the one that were alone. You wanted us to be together. So we need each other to do this. It's far too easy to give in to sin and then change what grace has looked like. No, your grace is, sta is stable. Help us to not be unstable. And help us to have courage, Lord. We all stumble in various ways. No one here is better than anyone. One struggle that one has may not be the struggle that someone else has, but we all got them. Help us to press through this for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir, for that word this morning. We do have a few questions. Um, we'll start with this one. Um, what practical advice would you give to those who struggle with loneliness? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would, you know, some of the, so let me say this before I say what I'm about to say. I think the problem with struggling and what, what's the way out, I think the deeper problem for many of us is we want, we want to do it differently than the means of grace that God's provided. So, like, so let me give you what I mean. Like when we think about, hey, pray about it, prayer is for most of us a last resort. Mm -hmm. It's not the first line of defense. It's usually the last thing we want to do. Yep. We don't have confidence in prayer because we often ask God for stuff that really doesn't serve any purpose in him. So we just don't have confidence in prayer. So when you hear like, well, I would pray, you just be like, ah. <laughs> We're always looking for a new technique. Like the deeper problem is not prayer doesn't work. The deeper problem is I just lost confidence in it. And I think many of us, if we're being honest, prayer is like a roll your eye. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I know. I got to pray. I know. Read the Bible. I know. I know. 
I'm not, I don't have many other answers outside of what God is, the means of grace. How can you grow in godliness? Hey, stop going to church. Don't go to church anymore. Don't read. Don't pray. You'll definitely grow in the Lord. Huh? All the means of grace are the things that he's put in his word. What we need to do is learn to pray like not my will, but your will be done. So we stop making the things that we desire. Stop making our desires his promises, right? Having said that, I think the first thing that you should do is ask the Lord, confess it to the Lord. I'm just, I'm lonely. I'm lonely. And then what I would do is, I do three things. One, be honest with the Lord. Just, say, just be honest with the Lord. Tell him you're lonely. Two, I would, I would find psalms of loneliness. God put those in his word for a reason, because he understands the full range of emotion. God doesn't have a problem with them. I joke and always say this all the time. Them psalms in the 80s, 83, 88, them, them psalms are not like, oh, but, you know, Lord, I'm, you know, my enemies surround me and this and that, but you, oh, God, have rescued me. Now, that, that thing ends like, you've made death my only friend, Selah. <laughs> There's some psalms where God, they don't go to, oh, but you, oh, God. But then you look at psalms like Psalm 73, right? I'm looking at all this, and I'm just disappointed. Listen, it's okay to be disappointed with God. He understands that. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. He put that in his word. That's a proverb. God doesn't care. He, he's not like, oh, no, you're disappointed. How dare you? He said, cast your anxieties on the Lord because I care about you. So I think we got to cast those anxieties. Cast that. We tell him, like, look, I'm just lonely. I'm lonely. One. And then two, I think go to the song. Look for Psalms. Three. Prepare for the scheme of the devil. Let me tell you what it's going to possibly look like. This is what the devil will do. He'll try to make you think like God's answer to your loneliness is like some relationship or something like that. It'll be like, if you're single, God will be like, you all of a sudden feel like, he'll, he'll remind you that your wedding is waiting and all this other stuff. And maybe it is, but I don't believe that stuff is the Lord. I think the Lord, the, ant the antidote to loneliness is not, just you and me, it's him. So he's saying, look, come, on, come near me. Pray to me a little bit more. Talk with me a little bit more. Look, the Lord is an acquired taste, let's be honest. Not everybody has, it's an acquired taste. Some people have it and they like it. Look, I don't, I, there's certain things, I don't like beer. I can't drink it. I hate it. When I was in the streets, they'd be like, man, you wanted 40? I'd be like, uh, yeah. I hate beer. Can't stand it. People love it. Go to Redskins games, me and Warren be there. People be smacked, twisted, throwing up on each other. As long as y'all are a couple seats away from us, I mean, that'd be easy. I'd be fighting in here. The Lord forgives. But you know, just the Lord's an acquired taste, but you have to acquire Him. So I would say, confess it to the Lord. Look for Psalms that comfort you, to remind you of, like, no, it's okay. It's okay. Scheme of the devil, he's going to try to get you to solve loneliness by something else. Do this. Get drunk, get high, jump on this dating app. Do this, do this, do this, whatever it is. Even hang with a friend. Sometimes you just need to hang with the Lord. That's what I, I would say that for now. There's more to be said, but I think it, then it, gets, it gets personal to the person. This one could be pretty personal, but I'm, I'm going to ask it. Um, what would you say to those who have found freedom in embracing overt sexuality 
in response to early uh, 2000s purity culture, um, such as I guess maybe your Bayaskis culture, so. Yeah. I would say first, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened. I'm really sorry. On behalf of the church, I'm sorry. That there was pressure, there was all this stuff put on you. I'm really sorry. I come out of that culture. Josh Harris was my close friend. I was in his documentary. I, I, I survived. I kissed David goodbye. I've been in his house many times. I'm sorry. Because purity culture was, was basically... It was, some people it was well intended, but it was largely just legalistic, self-righteous rules that ruined a lot of people's lives. Using terrible illustrations to make women feel like worse than anything. I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And you can't take that back. But the antidote is not to embrace the opposite of it. The antidote is always to embrace specifically what God's word says. And even though I grieve over that happening, and God does too, it's not like God is going to be like, hey, because this happened, you were in purity culture, you had a promise ring or whatever those things were, that you, you're, I'm okay with you, oh, overt sexuality. That's not the move. That's the opposite end of the, of, the same, of the spectrum. It's the other side of the same coin. One side was wrong. That's even worse. We don't embrace everything because we've been through something. That's just never how it works. So I would say if you are there and you're here, I'd love to talk with you, but you need to escape. You need to create some distance. And let me say this. This is an issue that's hard because there's connection. So we need to be patient with people who are, who are struggling with this and be like, well you, just need to, well, you just need to be patient with people and love them because it's hard. Underneath a lot of it is just we're just lonely. I've made some dumb decisions because I was lonely. It's a tough thing. It's a big deal to God. I mean, he created Eve for Adam because he didn't want to be lonely. Satan exploits it. Loneliness is real. And it's not just for singles. So I would say, I'm sorry that that happened to you. <clears throat> and I was a part of that culture, the tail end of it. I didn't embrace all of it because I was just from the street. So I was like, I don't even know. When I, every time I heard courtship, I was like, I ain't going back to court for nothing. <laughs> court to me meant one thing and one thing. I was like, I ain't, I ain't, I remember telling my buddy, I said, man, I ain't pursuing none of these girls in this church. He was like, why? Because I said, you got caught. I'm like, I ain't going back to court for nobody. So I did. <laughs> Different for me, court meant one thing. So that courtship stuff didn't work for me. I was like, good for y'all, but that's not my culture. Court to me, courtship means, man, you getting shipped away <laughs> from court. I know what that's like. I know what that's like. But I think you, you need distance. And if you need help coming up with a plan, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. If no one else wants to help you, I will. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. But you've got to create distance. That's not the move. That's not the move. It may be pleasuring it. It may feel good. You may feel connected. But you are disconnected from God. And there's going to come a time when you will regret that because that connection to God is the only thing we have when we leave this life. Um, there are a number of questions that um, like this. So, <clears throat> so if you ask a question um, that sounds similar to this, I'm only asking this question. So 
that's for those who turn in the question. But um, what if you struggle with um, habitual sexual sin in the past and you've known the truth, but you've turned away? Um, you confessed it, asked for forgiveness. Is there grace for repentance? Is there grace for repentance? And Go ahead. Forgiveness. And forgiveness? So, so Peter, right? Peter sinned against the Lord. Well, Peter was asking the Lord, hey, Lord, if someone sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? The Lord said, nah, 70 times seven. 490 times you forgive people. After 491, you don't have to. <laughs> That's not what he meant. I don't even know if they knew math like that back then because math, math came from the Romans. They weren't even doing multiplication back then. He meant you always forgive. God does not ask us to do things that he doesn't do. God was saying, since you believe in me and you follow me, that you have to forgive the way I do. I always forgive. The problem is not does God forgive. The problem is we want to sometimes continue in the sin and want forgiveness at the same time. We want forgiveness to be, <clears throat> I understand, and it's okay. That's not forgiveness. And this, is, this goes into a deeper issue, which I, this is this, this colloquial, this idea that, that God's love is unconditional. I, I get what people mean, but God's love is not unconditional because unconditional love accepts you as you are. God's love is transformational. The gospel message is not, is not come as you are. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you came. God will transform your life. And so sometimes the forgiveness from God, we want to be allowed to still do this and struggle with it. And he's saying, now let me pull you from it. I have Acts 3, 26. For God, for, for God, talking to the Jews, he said, for God sent them to you first to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. It doesn't always feel good. But so is there forgiveness at 100%? I mean, God is just waiting, waiting. The problem is we want to be forgiven, but we want to still enjoy it a little bit. God always forgives when we genuinely ask for it. And I think start there, and then I think you got to have a plan, though. You cannot loneliness, pleasure, all these things, you got to have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you just going to, what they say, fail to plan? What is it? Plan to fail. I just think that you cannot, listen, growing in the Lord is not like, you know, when I was a kid, me and my brother, we used to have all these little, if we went to our old apartment back in the hood, right, Conway Tower, you would see all these little marks on the door. They, well, they probably painted over it now. It's been some time. But if they didn't, you would see all these marks of growth. Oh, this, we put a little date beside it. 1981, I was this tall. I was taller than you. My brother's three years older than me. I was taller than you when we was sat when I was seven. When you was ten. Shrimp. You'd have all these marks, and you, because it, you grow physically. Even if you have deformities in birth, you will grow from being a baby to an adult. You that does not happen spiritually. You do not just grow over time. You grow with grace, with effort. You have to work. You do not just grow. You, you, and you don't stay the same. You do not stay the same. There's no neutrality in spiritual because it's spiritual warfare. The enemy does not have ceasefires for us. He's not like, you know what, man, leave that man alone for a couple of weeks. 
Let him go. Man, he's crazy. He's waiting for something to happen to be like, hey, let's go get that. Tell him that God is sovereign and he could have stopped it and he didn't, so it's his fault. And God is saying, I didn't stop it because I want you to grow as a result of it. So I just, I think there's always forgiveness. There's always forgiveness. But forgiveness to God comes with a connect, like, okay, what are we going to do now? Like, let's go, let's get it. Like, we want to ask for forgiveness, but God is not saying, keep staying in the same place. That's why he's warning. Abstain, get some distance. Many of us, if you don't know how to get distance, there are people in this room that will help you. If you don't, we get it. And don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed. We all have areas where we should have more distance. Don't be ashamed. Don't let the enemy shame you, shame you out of faithfulness. The day of being ashamed is done. Jesus despised the shame. You know what that means in Hebrews when he despised the shame? It means he wasn't even tripping off the fact that the cross would be shameful to other people. He didn't care. He despised the shame. And since he did, so should we. Despise the shame of our sin. Let's get to it. Let's commit. Let's say, look, we want to be consecrated. I want to devote my life to the Lord. I want to go after this. Now, don't do, don't, make, don't do, don't do nothing crazy, though. Like, I'm not going to pray, Lord, hurt my neck if I look again. Now, I ain't doing that. Because he'll, don't make no vow, he'll answer that prayer. <laughs> One day you just might sit and be like, ah, man, Kurt, what happened? Man, I prayed that the Lord would. <laughs> be careful what you pray for. But create a plan. Create distance. God wants you to create distance. That's maturity. You got the desire. Distance, time, transparency. So uh, this person asked a question, but I'm just going to I'm gonna follow up with what you said um, with a statement and ask, is it correct? So if someone has participated in sexual immorality as a believer and they are genuinely repentant, um, even though they have, um, through your message, they've given the spirit you know, to someone or they, you know, participated in that like basically in the throne room of God. If they're genuinely repentant, they have the Holy Spirit. If they've genuinely repented and put some distance between themselves and the acts. Is that the question? Is, Do they have the Holy yeah, Spirit? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. If they've done what you say, they, they're not continuing in sin, they've repented. They're walking with the Lord now, but they participated in that before. Is there hope for them that the Holy Spirit will be with them afterwards, after repentance? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, let me say this. Like, like I don't, okay, the Lord knows the difference between struggle and not struggle, right? The Lord doesn't just take his spirit from you when you sin. Otherwise, we just would be not no spirit at all. <laughs> we just, we're always in a perpetual state. That's not how the Lord works. But he will take it when he knows you're no longer tripping. He's like, well, I mean, because, I mean, that's even worse. I would want him to take it because I don't want to bring the Holy Spirit with me into this. The Lord will take it when he knows you just don't care. So it's like, all right, then I'm going to let you do you. But he's not going to take the spirit from you because you struggle. That's not how he does. That's not how he works. Because the spirit, so Galatians 5.17, right? For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, right? This so that you do not do what you want to do. It's not, it's not an equal battle. 
This is the flesh was just doing its thing, and then you got saved, and the spirit was like, all right, boop, no more, bro. No more. We slowly pushing back, slowly pushing back. Now, you can, over time, not care and keep doing your thing, and the spirit will be like, all right, well, go ahead now. But that would be something you did, not what God did. God would be like, all right, since you, let me go ahead and let you do you. God will, what is one of those, God's a gentleman. He'll let you do you. He's a gentleman. He'll let you do you. He's not going to force his way on you. But he knows who his people are. He's not taking his spirit from you because you struggle, because you sinned a little bit. He's not going to be like, he knows who you are. How did God tell Samuel, David's a man after my own heart, and David committed sins that none of us in this room will probably ever commit because he knew David's heart. God can look past the struggle and see the heart of the person and be like, they love me despite their struggle. But what we shouldn't do is be like, all right, God knows my heart, so let me keep struggling. That's the balance. That's the balance. So God knows my heart. That's actually the problem. And your actions are making us know your heart, too. So I just think, I think there's always grace. But the Spirit is still with you, whoever that is. Especially if you repented. Man, you, you, you should, man, you could be fired up right now. The Spirit is with you 100%. The fact that you asked that question, the concern that you have is indicative of the Spirit. Because people who don't have the spirit don't care. It's people in this room that's not tripping. And that's what for you. I can't, I, I'm not, I don't feel bad. I mean, I don't feel, I don't feel like, oh, no, I didn't preach good enough. It just is what it is. There's people that just don't care. I've seen people, they just ain't tripping. After church, hey, man, we start doing for lunch. What do you think of the message? It was all right. Cool. When you stand before the Lord, though, you better have applied something. If it's not what I said, it better be something you read. Y'all caught that ball? If it's not what I said, it's something you read. Always. Always. I love it when you call me big. <laughs> still, still a street dude. So um, can you just share some practical steps that one could take to distance themselves from sexual immorality? No, it's okay. No, nah, I mean, I, it, this is a hard one, so I get why people keep asking for practical steps. So let me say some different things, right? Because I did kind of answer that question. But let me say some different things. I would... Try to figure out two things first. Maturity always starts with renewing the mind. Don't worry. Don't cut off what you watch and what you don't do that first. You know why? Because you'll be like, all right, I'm going to stop watching this and listening to this music. But then if you don't renew your mind, it'll be right back. Don't do that. Don't worry. That's not start with renewing the mind first. What what are the lies that I hear and believe and look specifically for the ways that I justify doing things? I knew I looked at that woman because I'm lonely. And I was like, man, Lord, I justified it because I'm lonely and I wanted to look. You got to feel, how am I justifying this? How am I doing this? What am I believing? You got to do that work. You got to do that work. That's not going to happen. No one's going to do that. I mean, I can sit down and talk with you and then help you make the connections. But you've got to renew your mind first. You got to believe this does not honor the Lord. Because if you don't and you just go to stopping this, man, you'll be right back. I've done that so many times. You know how many times I stopped smoking weed and stuff like that? It was like, but it came right back because really, it wasn't really that big of a deal to me. I knew it was wrong culturally speaking, but I didn't know it was wrong in my heart. So you got to renew your mind so that this is wrong in your heart. And your conviction is coming from, no, nah, I'm not dishonoring the Lord. And when you fail, you just be like, okay, I, let me find out. That. So we'll get into this later in the series, reactive and proactive. Certain, this is a sin you got to be re proactive about. Don't wait until after you sin. I mean, that's going to happen, but you got to be proactive. You got to be like, man, I'm struggling. I already know what this is. 
I've made decisions, major decisions, because I was like, I'm vulnerable. Only a few people know this. I was supposed to go to Rome last year, and I ain't go. I canceled the trip. Greatest photography trip I would have been on in my life. I canceled it. Because I was like, you know what? I'm vulnerable. And I don't want to go to Rome and be by myself and be around all these women that I'm attracted to. And I could think, oh, I'm by myself. Nobody would know. But the Lord would know, and I would know. And I would come back, and I couldn't do that. I can't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't stand here. I, I, at some point, I would I'd find a way to have to leave. I couldn't do it. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go on this trip. I didn't go. And I was blown. And I didn't think I was going to fall because I'm, I'm not a weak dude. But I was like, you know what? Mm, I'm vulnerable. So I didn't go. I was like, I had, I mean, I had all my sights picked out. I'm going here. Yeah. I was talking to different people. Hey, where did you go when you went? Man, I was like, hey, what? You and Liz was like, Yo, go down this road. And I said, oh, I'm going. That's what I'm I mean, I had my Airbnb book. And then I was like, you know what? Man, I don't know. And then I was like, nah, I'm not going. You got to make decisions that will hurt for his glory. And as soon as I said I'm not going, I was like, not today, Satan. <laughs> and I don't think I would have fallen if I went there, but I just wasn't sure. So I was like, I ain't going. Yeah. I'm saying this not to boast. I'm saying this because it's real. Sometimes it's got to be that real. I'm not, I'm not going here. I'm not hanging with these people. I'm not watching this show. I'm not listening to this music because it reminds me. I'm not watching these romantic comedies because they make me crave connection. You got to figure out what are you thinking first and then look at what actions am I committing that make this thinking possible. They reveal, you got to do that. If you do those two things, staying with Biggie, sky is the limit. You can do it, but it takes real work. You're not going to just grow. You ain't going to mark no notches off by just thinking about it. You got to, and doing that, you got to think, well, what, how do I fall into this? How do I justify this area? And don't do, and if, if it, it might just be lonely, or it could just be it feels good. But remember the gospel message. If anyone would come after me, he must first. Then what? Then what? You got to deny yourself. Deny yourself is a lost art of the Christian life right now. We live in a world where we want to follow Jesus and not deny nothing. We want to do all of it. If it feels good to me, if it is right to me, as if the word doesn't say the way of a man seems right. But the end is, is curtains. I think we just, we just, we just got to go after it. So, yes, there's forgiveness, all of that. The Lord is waiting for that. We'll end with this question uh, for the sake of time. Uh, I think that uh, most of you are here who, uh, whose question I didn't get to, but um, this is a question about, uh, well, let me just read it. What's your take on squaring the insight from Genesis 2, that it's not good for man to be alone, and Paul's encouragement to the single and widowed in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, which says to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between Genesis 2 being alone and not having a companion to one, you know, exercise dominion over the earth and procreate, right? So there was, it would have been wild if, I mean, we would have all been minotaurs or something if his, if his companion was a donkey or something, right? <laughs> so, so it was good for him to have companionship so we look like human beings instead of like like on the, the Chronicles of Narnia or something. Looking like Mr. Tumnus. But um, <laughs> I'm, I need to, I'm, I'll be here till Thursday. <laughs>
I think, but I think the, what Paul's talking about is the, the being alone is you're not alone when the Lord is with you. That's his point. They, the Lord wasn't, it was different back then. Like when he says like it's good for you not to marry and to be alone, the Lord, the Lord is, is with you. So you're not alone actually. And the only reason why he's saying that is because you get into a lot of worldly sorrows. A lot of times relationships distract us from God. They distract us from God. Because we, this, in the same chapter, you know, the married man focuses on worldly things. Not sinful things, but just he focuses on how to please his wife and his things. Don't get me wrong. He doesn't discourage it. He's saying it, but, he's, but, it, but, but it's a distraction. So, so his point about being alone is so that you can be fully devoted to the Lord. That's his point. So I think the, the, the insight from Genesis 2 and, and that is really the enemy is telling us that we, the enemy's not saying, hey, be alone so that you can trust the Lord. The enemy's telling you be alone because the Lord is not with you either. So we crave connection with somebody else because we want connection by sight instead of by faith. And it's, hard, and it's, it's nothing wrong with having both. But, it, but, it, but the loneliness that Paul is talking about is connected to the spirit is in you. You have a relationship with the risen Christ, and this is how I function. That's what he's talking about. So those aren't those are totally different things. That's a good question, though. Totally different. That's it. All right, let's let's do this. Let's remember that we're not alone. Let's remember that. And then after this, let me say this real quick. I, I think we need to have some prayer here. Because I think this is one of the messages where you'll just hear it and leave. But I think there are people in this room that I know need to have prayer. Whether it's sexual sin, whether it's anger from last week, or just battling loneliness. We're not leaving without our opportunity to pray. So when we're done with this, I'd like the leadership team, the guys that come on this side. I'd like Chris come up here with them. And on this side, I'd love the women, Karen and uh, Dana. And uh, Velma, come on this side, too. Carla, could you come up? First of all, Carla, welcome back. Good to see you. Would like Carla to pray as well. And April, on this side, please. After we do this, because I think we need to, some of us need to do, need to confess that we've just allowed different things to distract us from the Lord. Some of us need to be encouraged on how to do this. We want some practicals for you. But we need to be transparent if we're going to have biblical maturity. Transparency is a part of it. If your pastor can confess his weaknesses, then you can. All right? Father, we, we take this acknowledging that you chose loneliness. You sent your son, Jesus. You chose it. You were lonely. You walked off by yourself a lot alone to pray. Even when the disciples were with you in the garden, you went a little bit ahead of them, just alone. Just to be alone. You understand the challenges of being alone. You told, you told John to watch out for your mom. Even though there were other kids, but you knew you didn't want her to be alone without him, without you. You care about this deeply in us, and the enemy has so deceived us and hats off to him. It's a good scheme. But today we expose it. But on the cross, you destroyed it. You destroyed its power over us. That even though we've been beaten by it, we are not defeated by it. 
And so, Lord, as we remember that your body was broken for us as we eat this wafer, and as we remember that your blood was shed as we drink this juice, as we pray and, and get encouragement, no shame, we all struggle. But as people come up for prayer, Lord, as David said, create in them a heart that's clean. Create in us, Lord. Purge us with hyssop. Help us to have confidence because you've forgiven us. Your spirit is in us. You don't just take it away because we struggle with sin, even because we give in. You take it away when we don't care. And whoever asks that question, they care. And this room is full of people who care. So, Lord, we eat this remembering that we are not alone. Let's eat together. And we drink this remembering that we're not alone. Let's drink this together. Lord, may this day not go by. May no one be ashamed. May no one care who sees them walk up. We don't care about none of that today. For real, the whole church could walk up front. Lord, we care about none of that. But what we care about is reestablishing a connection with you. It doesn't mean that you won't give us connection with other people. You've already given that in relationships. Doesn't mean if someone is single, they're not going to get married. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean if someone's lonely, they have to accept loneliness. But we want to learn how to make sure we're connected to you. You have an interesting way of making us not feel like we're alone when we're lonely. So Lord, I pray for the prayers that will happen at the end of this, at the end of my prayer. And that you would establish a reconnection with you and a confidence. And Lord, a plan. We have to renew our minds first. That's the way you wired us. We got to think about this and then act for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget about uh, the core groups this week. You got, Jenna, is it yours this week? Is heaven this week? Okay, all right. So we got a group of heaven that is waiting for somebody to go in it. Pun intended. You got the creative journaling. I'm excited about that group. That's going to be interesting. Creative journaling with Becky. You got me on Thursday with the Martyrs Club. We're going to talk about how people die for the Lord, why, and what does that look like for us? What hills do we die on? Having said that, could the people who have been asked to pray please come up front? Women on this side, men on this side, and you are dismissed. God bless you, love you, and we'll see you when I see you.